Joshua 11 to 12. That's our, our passage today. We are uh, taking big chunk out of Joshua. And um, here we actually come uh, to the end of the conquest section of Joshua. And so for all my uh, Enneagram 9 or conflict avoiders, uh, you can take a sigh of relief. We are, we are done with warring after this, uh, at least until Judges. Uh, and here we find uh, the final battles for northern Canaan. Um, and of course, the stakes have never been higher. The odds are stacked against Israel. Uh, and it's perhaps, maybe, the worst odds uh, that we've seen thus far. Uh, last chapter, uh, we saw the five Amorite kings come against Israel. Uh, we saw them uh, come against Gibeon, uh, in, in, uh, specifically speaking. And Israel, of course, is pulled into the battle um, and this week we see an even larger coalition of en- enemy uh, cities joined together uh, to attack Israel. They're, they don't want to go down like the rest of the, the Canaanite uh, countries and, and cities. And so uh, last week the king of Jerusalem came against uh, Gibeon and Israel. And this week we have the king of uh, Hazor, or King Jabin, uh, who decides this is a good idea. We should go attack those guys who just beat all of our friends. Uh, so look at verse 1 through 5 in chapter 11 with me. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, uh, king of Madam, and to the king of Shimron, and the king of Akshaf, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in the Naphoth door of the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under the Hermon, under Hermon in the land of Mitzvah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in a number like sand that is on the seashore, with many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And this gives us a scope of the terrifying reality that faces Israel. Right? The description that's used here uh, is, is, is so vivid in, in imagery where uh, they are counted as uh, the sand that is on the seashore. In other words, they're innumerable. You, you can't count them. There's, there's so many uh, that, that they don't face uh, a very good chance of, of winning. I mean, not only do, are there many warriors, there are also horses and chariots, uh, which are the modern uh, tech, you know, modern military might. Uh, and Israel, meanwhile, is a, a band of ex-slaves who have uh, no military weapons that their, their enemies have. Um, and here, I, I think we get... There's, this is on purpose. The, the mismatch is on purpose. Uh, it's to show that Israel's vis- uh, victory over its enemies is not by their own strength or their might, but rather by God's gift, God's gracious care. Uh, and it's not an accident that at the end of the, the, uh, the wars, uh, the Canaanite conquest, at least for now, we have Israel facing um, possibly, possibly one of the greatest threats. And it's easy to imagine that if we were in their shoes or if we imagine what they were feeling as they were watching uh, their, their, their people being surrounded by these armies, uh, that they are probably quaking in their shoes. Um, and, and I think it says something that God has to continually tell Joshua, continually tell uh, the Israelites, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, from beginning to the end. Uh, as we saw from uh, chapter 1 to now, it's always do not fear, because I am with you. Uh, and not only am I with you, but I fight on your behalf. And that, that, that's our first point for today, which is the Lord fights on behalf of his people. The Lord fights on behalf of his people. Look at verse 6 and verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them 
slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Misrephoth, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah, and they struck them until he left none remaining. And so, as the people are, are standing here looking at these um, enemies, these armies standing against them, it, it's amazing to see that Joshua's you know, fears and thoughts, they're not even recorded here. They, they, you don't see Israel's response to this. You suddenly just see God's response. God comes and takes initiative and speaks to him and says, do not be afraid. Simply do not be afraid. I, I think God understands the human tendency here uh, to be overcome by fear, and especially when we're facing what seems to be insurmountable odds. Right, Israel is probably doing what we're prone to do in these situations, and I know this because I do this. If I'm facing insurmountable odds, my first thing to do is, how do I logically think out of this situation? What can I do to fix this? Right? They have horses. We have you know, carts. They have chariots. We have to walk. I don't know. They have an army of warriors. We have the guys at the YMCA. Like, what are we supposed to do? God, the, the, the odds are not in our favor. What am I supposed to do? And, and the thing is, they're not wrong about their odds if this is Israel's fight to fight. But here's where we see that God wants them to know, I fight on your behalf. I fight for you. Right? They don't even have the heart to go to God for help. At least the author doesn't record any instance of this. But, but it's, it's crazy to see that God goes to them, goes to Israel, goes to Joshua and says, you don't need to fear. I'll fight for you. I will fight for you. I will give them over to you, slain to Israel. In other words, I know what you're facing. I know your fears. But know this. I will fight on your behalf. Right? These Canaanite kings also need to understand to go against God's people is to go against him. He takes it personally. He takes it personally when his children are attacked. Anything that is a threat to his children, he does not let go. He takes it very personally. And he delivers these enemies defeated into Israel's hands. And he actually does the work of defeating them. And as a warning to anybody who wants to harm God's children, you got to go through me. You want to hurt my kids? You got to go through me. Uh, Psalm 30, uh, 91, uh, chapter, verse 3 to 4 says this. The psalmist writes, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. Uh, and, and the psalmist actually paints a picture of how God takes care of his children who are under attack. Right? And he gives this uh, picture, that, you know, he uses the word pinions. It's basically like a mother hen covering her chicks with with her, her, her wings. Uh, in other words, to say, I will protect you. Uh, and if you've know if you ever gone near baby ducks, baby chickens, and you know the hen is there, or the, the, the mother duck, you're going to get attacked if, if, if they're under any sort of threat. Uh, and he kind of paints a picture of how protective God is of his children. Um, and I might get in trouble for this, but I think a good contextual way, a way to contextualize this is to see what happens when parents see that the SFUSD tries to take away merit-based admissions to Lowell. That's kind of what happens. All right, sorry. You can send me, a, don't send me an email. I'm sorry. But, but you kind of get that picture, right? It's a parent who says, you want to hurt my children? You got to go through me. 
And here we have a God who says, you want to harm my children? I'll take that personally and I'll, I'll see to it. I will see to it that you pay. What do you do when you find yourself in Israel's position? Right? When the situation in front of you is so terrible that you cannot imagine a way out. Right? Perhaps you've been seeking uh, to have a child, to start a family for months and months and years and years and still nothing. Or perhaps you're seeing someone that you love wither away in cancer. I think we all have these situations, right? We're paralyzed by anxiety, by fear. We feel like we have no answer or solution. And I'm not here to tell you just don't fear. Fear in and of itself is our human response, but I want to point you to God's response to his children and their fear. Yes, I see the horde surrounding you. I see the armies camped around you waiting to destroy you at the first, the first uh, opportunity, but... Do not fear because I am with you and I will fight on your behalf. This week, uh, my wife was, was sharing with me her reading in, in 2 Kings chapter 6 and, and, and it was a situation I thought, wow, really illustrates this point. And, and it's where Elisha, the pro- prophet of Israel, is with his servant and, and Syria, the kingdom, is coming against them. It's very similar to this situation where they're coming to destroy Israel and Elisha and his prophet are, are, are you know with the people of Israel and they see in the morning that Syria has surrounded them. And of course, the, the servant is fearing. He's, he's, he's shaking in his boots and he's like, what do we do with this situation? What are we supposed to do? And Elijah is oddly calm. And he says, well, hold on. And he prays for this servant. And he says, God, would you let him see the truth? Would you open his eyes? And, and the writer of Second Kings says, suddenly his eyes are open and the servant sees the entire mountain is covered with horses and chariots of fire. In other words, God's entire army is there. And Elijah says, hey, we have more people than they do. And the servant's like, okay, yeah, I guess you're right. All this to say, even when we are blind to the truth, our God fights on our behalf. We may not see what is happening, and at times it may seem like nothing is going on. It seems like he's forgotten me. He has lost sight of who of what I'm going through, and he doesn't understand, and yet it does not mean that he is not present or working. See, it's not just a passive presence, but rather he is actively working on behalf of of his children. He's not just aware of your fears, but he's actually fighting on your behalf, and any threat that comes against us, he takes it personally, and he acts. And the cross is the ultimate proof of that. When we were in our sin, enslaved and meant to be destroyed. What was he doing? Sending a baby in a manger to be a carpenter, to live the life that we were meant to live, and to die the death that we were meant to die. And he doesn't just say, I get it, but he acts by sending his own son to defeat sin and death on our behalf. Disciples, the witnesses, they didn't understand what was going on, yet he was working through it all. See, it does not matter what you are enduring, what awful situation you find yourself in, there is never a situation in which your God abandons you. There's never a time when your God does not fight for you. That's his promise to you and me as his children. Second, God is as good as his word. God is as good as his word. 
Uh, as we see, it is very good news for Israel, for Joshua, that God is for them. Uh, he gives the nations into their hands. All these nations or these cities that have come against them, uh, they're, they're destroyed. Look at verse 12. And all the cities of, these, of those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. All right, it's a, an absolute rout. There's a total victory uh, that, 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 that Israel has over these kings and their cities. Um, and verse 16 and 18, we get the sense of closure here. Finally, we see a bit of closure. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negeb, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal God at the, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. And so this is a summary statement that kind of wraps up all that we've been reading up until this point, from first, uh, the first chapter of Joshua all the way here. And, and it, it's a bit surprising, honestly, when I read this, to read verse 18 and see that Joshua made war a long time with all those kings, right? Because we get this sense when we read through these chapters really quickly that everything happens really fast, right? If you were a kid in the 90s, you watched VeggieTales, you watched uh, them walk around, the vegetables bounce around this Jericho, and the whole thing collapses within 30 minutes and you're out the door with a moral story. It's great, right? It's fast. And that's how we kind of read this and we think, yeah, each chapter was a day or two. It was a quick victory. It was so easy. They battled, and it was over within, within you know, a short amount of time because it's so short, seemingly. And yet the author tells us it was war for a long time. And a long time, the commenta commentators uh, look at this and they try to you know, estimate how long they mean by long time. Some think it might have been up to seven years based on Caleb's age, uh, one of the spies. And, and, and so you've got to imagine what it's like being in their shoes. This was a long, arduous process. Right? And, and that's why at the end of verse 23, uh, it said the land had rest from war. It, it gives off this tired and weary feel of a long journey finally coming to an end. Why is this important for us to take note of? Why is it important for us to take note of how long this took? Because I think this actually forces us to see the big picture. This forces us to see not just what is happening right here in Joshua 11 and 12, but actually to see all the way back to Genesis. Way back to Genesis 13, when Abraham first got this promise from God. Genesis 13, 14 says this, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I mean, this is big, big picture. This is a promise given not just a long time ago, it was generations ago. Generations ago when God spoke to uh, the, the forefathers of Israel, and you have to remember that these people who received the promise did not see it come to fruition within their lifetime. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the entire generation coming out of, ex, uh, of Egypt during the Exodus, they didn't see any of this. And yet here, we see it coming to fruition. Right? Does it mean that for those people that God's promises were not good or that he's not trustworthy? 
Because I think if, if I was in their shoes and, and I heard these promises, if I was Abraham and hearing that, oh, I'm going to, you know, well, I mean, for him it was a little easier. His, his, your, gener- your, your future uh, uh, um, generations will receive this. But I, I think if I was coming out of uh, Egypt with, with the rest of the Israelites, thinking that I'm going to get the promised land, man, that would have been a hard journey. To hear the promises and then to not receive them in my lifetime. Right? Chapter 12, it, it, it's a compilation, a, a summary of, of the victories Israel has over the kings of Canaan. Right? Moses is the first half, and then uh, Joshua is the second half. Um, and basically, what we see here is the fulfillment, the further fulfillment of the promises of God. Verse 23 So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it up for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. This is what it points to in the following chapters, the tribal allotments. Basically, Israel receiving the promised land that it heard of way back when. The fulfillment of God's promises. All this to say, God is trustworthy even when we are tempted to doubt his word. God is always trustworthy. Right? And yet it's so hard for us to believe that sometimes, right? Or especially when it comes to, to waiting uh, for something that doesn't seem to be coming. And, and the Bible gives us plenty of examples. For instance, Abraham and Sarah, you will have a child. But God, I'm old and wrinkly. How is that possible? We're barren, right? Those who are exiled to Babylon, are we really going to be rescued? Are we really going to return home? Right? The foretold Messiah where is he? Why do we keep getting taken over by different nations? Jesus is second coming. When is he coming back, God? That's the, that's the question we're asking now. And in all these situations, humans, man, we are often tempted to doubt his promises because his timing and his method rarely follows what I expect, what I think it should be. And that's our problem. All right. When God's promises come up against our expectations, we are so quick to turn on him. All right. Imagine being one of these Israelites, having grown up in the wilderness, uh, seeing the generation that, that messed up uh, pass away, and you're waiting and waiting, and finally it's your turn. Right? Joshua's like, hey guys, we're going to take the promised land in the beginning of this, of this book. And, and, and you go in and you're thinking, oh man, this is going to be great. We're going to step in. Everything's going to be open. We're going to have it finally. I've been waiting my entire life. And then God says, wait, I'm going to have you do some weird stuff. Go walk around that city. Don't attack them, just walk around. And then blow a trumpet. <laughs> You're probably thinking, okay, I've wasted my entire life. What is the point of this? What, where, when are these things going to come true, God? And then not only is there fighting, there's continuous fighting and more fighting and more fighting for months and months and years and years and years. If I'm being honest, if that was me, I would doubt him, all right? you sure your word is good? Are your promises actually true? Do you actually know what you're doing, God? Have you heard of a catapult? <laughs> Anything. Please, God. My friend, what, what, in what area of your life do you doubt God? Right? You, you know his promises. You've heard it before. You've gone to church. You've read it in your Bible. And yet he doesn't seem to be answering or fulfilling the words that he has spoken to you. Like he should. Like, you know he should. God, you promise, right? For those who love you, all things work together for good. But why am I still sick? 
Why is my body still deteriorating? What, what, what purpose does this serve? Right? You say you never lose the sheep that the Father gives you, but why is my daughter still so far from you? Why does it seem like she's not coming back? I know you said you would never leave me or forsake me, but why do I feel so lonely as if you have left me in this season of life? It's hard for us, isn't it? Waiting. When we think we know better, although we would never admit it aloud, we think we know better than, than God. We, it's like, God, I know how to do this. Just follow my lead. That's why we get so frustrated when he doesn't answer us right away. Or he says no to our prayers. Yet, my friends, what do we know intellectually to be true? What do we know theologically to be true? Right? Every time that we come to these situations in the Bible, what do we see happen? We see that God actually answers every single time. He sees every single one of these prayers and he answers his people. Right? Abraham and Sarah, yes, we are old, we are barren, and what does he do? He provides them a child. When they are gray and about to die, they receive a child. Those who are exiled to Babylon, who've been waiting so long to return, what happens? They are given, finally, after decades of waiting, uh, they're given uh, permission to return home, to rebuild their city, to restore uh, Jerusalem. For those who are waiting for the foretold Messiah, what did they receive? They received him in a manger. For those of us waiting for Jesus' second coming, still waiting, but certain to come. Just as we saw him answer his people before, we see that he will always do so. That's his MO. We see that here. As the people of Israel were promised the promised land, they now are beginning to receive it. They are finally here. You see, just, as, just because Jesus does not work on your schedule does not mean he's not trustworthy. It just means that maybe our schedule is not as great as we think it is. But our God is greater than we could ever imagine him to be. His plans are better than we could ever imagine. He is, he is supreme. He is sovereign. He knows more than we do. We do not. And what's that like? It's, it's like going down to L.A. On a, on a trip to, uh, a poorly planned trip to Disneyland, taking a child on an eight-hour drive, and within 10 minutes the child asks you, are we there yet? And you think as you're driving, child, if we were there, you would be very disappointed. The 280 is nowhere as fun as Disneyland. But the child does not know. The child just wants to get there. But doesn't understand how long it'll take to get there and why it's better to wait till the very end. The kid is ignorant, impatient. That's me. Tim Keller says, if we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what he gives. In other words, we don't know it all, but he does. And therefore, it is good to wait upon him, to trust him, to know that even when he doesn't answer our prayers, it's for good, for our good, for our benefit, because there's something better. He understands all things, but we do not. And we need to be humbled to recognize this reality. And this is where our theology must inform our practice. If God is trustworthy and he is as good as his word, then I can rest on him no matter what whether he answers the prayers the way I want to or he doesn't. And so when I am tempted to doubt 
when I'm tempted to say, God, it's been so long, I don't sense that you are for me or you're working in my situation, I need to ask myself, what do I know about you? How have you worked for your people in the past? How have I seen you work in my life over the long run? And it's something that's been very helpful for me is to write in a journal, simply to record my prayers, my thoughts, not, not, to, not to create a picture of holiness, but basically to say, this is where I'm doubting you, God. This is where I'm struggling. This, these are my prayers. These are my desires. Because I find myself to be very forgetful. But when I'm able to turn back in those pages to see the past, I see how he has answered my prayers again and again and again, and it's always better than I could ever ask for or imagine. Just because I don't see you working does not mean you are not. Brings us to our final point, obedience to God is life. Obedience to God is life. But look at verse 15 with me. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, So Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And that second part of verse 23, or first part of of verse 23 again. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. See, what, what we're getting at here is the writer, Joshua, is trying to paint a picture of what it looks like to obey God. They did that the Lord commanded. They did that the Lord had spoken. And and what we find in those moments when they obey, good things happen. They have victory over their enemies. They receive the land promised to them. And in fact, when they listen and obey, they simply have to walk around a city seven times, blow their trumpets, and the whole thing comes crumbling down. Which, if you ask me, is much easier than trying to tear down a city. Right? When they obey, they are blessed with victory and success. And yet the opposite is also true. Every time they disobeyed God, whether it was at, at AI uh, or with Achan's sin, what happened? They faced death. They faced destruction. They, they faced discipline. And, and the, true, the same was true of Israel's enemies as well. Right? We, we, we count how Joshua has victories over uh, these other cities. And, and what we see in verse 19, it says, there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, inhabitants of Gibeon, and they took them all in battle. And it says, no one made peace with Israel except for the Gibeonites. And, and we read about that uh, in, in chapter 9, where their deception actually leads to their salvation. Right? And as a result, all these kings, these cities are taken by Israel uh, because they rejected the will of God. They rejected him. They disobeyed. And, and then we come to verse 20, which I think needs some unpacking and clarification here. Uh, it says, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. I know someone will look at this passage and think, wow, that's mighty cruel of, of God. How could he do such a thing to harden their hearts? Right? We see these passages and we think, wow, man, that, that just shows how cruel he is if we misread this. All right, this should point us back to passages like uh, Pharaoh in the Exodus where God hardened Pharaoh's heart and it led to the escape of God's people. Now, note what it does not say here. God did not refuse their desire to obey or to submit to God. He did not change their mind 
he hardened their heart, meaning he kept what was already there. He maintained something that was already there. In other words, these people had already decided to reject God. They came together and said, let us destroy Israel. Let us destroy God's people. Let us come against them. And so in his sovereign plan, he hardened their heart and gave them what they wanted. He gave them what they wanted. You see, while obedience to God is life, the opposite is also true. Disobedience to God is death. In other words, our choices have real consequences that affect our daily life. And now this is not shocking news, but I think we need reminders of this. Right? We see obedience to God is not optional. Right? In one sense, it, it kind of is, but what are the consequences of, of disobeying God? Right? Because of Achan and his sin, God turned from his people and they suffered when they went into battle alone. Right? Because of Pharaoh and his refusal to allow God's people to go, God brought about the ten plagues that caused destruction to, his, to Egypt and his people. Right? Because of Israel's enemies here and their refusal to, to submit to God, but rather to kill God's people, God struck them down and wiped them out. And Romans 1 gives us a good sense of, of what this looks like. Right, where it describes the unrighteousness of man, the wickedness of man. And, and in God's uh, sovereignty, basically in our, righteous, in our unrighteousness, when we choose to sin, Romans 1 tells us he gives them up. He gives us up three times. He gives us up to our lusts. He gives us up to our passions and our debased mind. In other words, yes, we were given a choice. And in so choosing to reject God for idols, God gives us up to exactly what we want. We should not be surprised that when we choose to ignore our God, when we choose to reject Him, that we suffer the natural consequences of sin. Right? If we set up academic success as God for our children, as that, if that's the only way you can be fulfilled, child, if that's what you need to pursue, we should not be surprised that they do not care much about their faith. Right? If we watch pornography and we, we wonder why my, my relationship with my spouse or my significant other is so lukewarm and passionless. Right? When we pursue worldly success and monetary gain as the most important thing in my life, I don't understand why my God is so lukewarm. My relationship with Him is so boring. Right? I spend all my time, my, my waking hours, seeking some cheap form of entertainment and, and I'm surprised to find that I can't hear God. Our actions have consequences. When we sin, when we disobey God, we actually bring ourselves closer to death. And yet on the flip side, and here's the, the good news, uh, to obey God is to find life. That's what we see here for Israel, to obey God. Yes, his journey that he brings you on may not be easy, it may not be simple, but it is life itself. That every time we see that Israel obeys God, they receive his promises, his blessings. And it doesn't mean that you're going to have an easy life if you obey him, but you will have a joyful life, a life of purpose, a life of reason, a life of eternity, a life worth living. See, he brings us into a place of joy. When we get to come alongside of him, when we get to be in his presence, it only happens when we obey him. Obe obedience to God gives us an eternal life as we get to have fellowship with him from now to the end of time and beyond. See, that's always been his desire, not to steal away our pleasure, but rather to give us a greater joy and that is only found in obedience to him. Take some time, 
to think about that. We're gonna, I'll pray for us and then we'll, we'll enter into a time of, of communion together. Uh, I'm going to give you guys some time to just, just pray in your seats and come before God. Father, I thank you that you are a God who is for us and not against us. God, how you interact with us, how you have treated us from beginning to end, it has always been for our good. Whether you're disciplining us, teaching us, stretching us, challenging us, God, it has always been for our sanctification and for our benefit. God, uh, I pray for our our congregation, our people here. pray that you would meet us where we're at, God, in our our brokenness and our hurts and our struggles. God, would you remind us, for those of my, my brothers and sisters in here who are hurting, who are waiting on your promises, who are feeling perhaps that you've abandoned them, or perhaps they're feeling just like nothing in this life is going the right way. God, would you remind them that you have not left them? Would you remind them that you are you are for them and not just for them, but you are fighting on their behalf right now, even if they don't see anything happening? God, would you give them strength to trust you, to rely on you and your word? Would you strengthen them with your spirit, God? And ultimately, each day, would they remember the cross? God, that you would Show them how much you love them. We thank you for being our God and pity in your son's name. Amen.